Right on. On the podcast today, we have Justin Moore, longtime listener, first time caller, all the way from the beautiful state of California. How are you doing today, Justin? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, why don't you give the viewers or the listeners, sorry, a bit of a 411 about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a professional firefighter in, in California. Uh, I'm a municipal firefighter. I'm a day to day. I'm a captain on a truck company. I've been working as a professional firefighter for 22 years in municipalities. Um, I've also had an extensive career working as at, in, in the safety side of things in, in industry as well. Um, that kind of spurs for me getting into special operations within the fire department, uh, both a technical rescue, USAR, and hazardous materials background lended to me getting into industrial training. Um, and I'm also a, uh, a co-owner of a uh, safety company, First in Safety, where we travel around and do uh, training for both uh, for, uh, emergency responders as well as industry workers, standby rescue, things of that nature. Right on. And how long have you been doing that with uh, First In? First In Safety started in 2012. Um, prior to that, myself and the other owner, Roy Segovia, were uh, working for a variety of other similar companies throughout California, doing work in oil fields, oil platforms, water distribution and treatment facilities, things of that nature. And then in 2012, we branched off and uh, started our own thing, kind of putting our focus between both uh, public safety training, fire departments, law enforcement, things of that nature, as well as that emergency response element within industry. A lot of confined space and uh, ammonia refrigeration systems, response to leaks and that type of. Right on. I didn't realize the hazmat background as well. I almost feel sorry for you a bit now. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, it's like you're either part of the chess club or you're on the football team. You can't do both. It's at least in California, it's a fairly rare commodity to find someone who's part of the technical rescue world as well as the hazardous materials world. And, and in our bread and butter, really where I, where I cut my teeth is to find space. I really feel that that discipline specifically really requires the, the combination of hazardous materials background and understanding and technical rescue so it really like blended well for that particular discipline i couldn't agree with you more on that one and i even had the unfortunate stint when i first got promoted to captain the choice was going to the hazmat hall so i took it but uh <laughs> very similar i did my first six years as a captain in the uh in the hazmat station yeah i was lucky i transferred out of there on to rescue like i don't know four years ago or whatever and so I've been lucky ever since, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's start where you start, right? And it's good to have the, the varied background, like you say. So today, what we're actually going to be talking about is, I guess we're going to have to touch on fire scope in order to get into the REMS thing. And uh, I don't know a lot about REMS, so this is going to be quite interesting for me. It's not something we do north of the border, Although we probably should, you know, talking offline, we're fighting wildland fires in very similar terrain and very similar conditions. And um, yeah, so I guess just to start it off, why don't we talk a little bit about fire scope to give people the background of where REMS came from? So FireScope is a is a California-based organization that really got started um, out of our our wildland 
threat and issue in California where multiple agencies, fire departments, municipal and wildland throughout the state are coming together and operating with one another. And in the late 80s, there was a, an understanding that we needed some sort of, of a system that put us all on the same page and standardized us in a way to where we could communicate and operate together. And the large players uh, in the wildland industry, uh, Cal Fire, the Forest Service, LA County, Ventura County, a handful of others came together to form FireScope. Um, and really, so its birthplace was wildland. And then since then, it's, it's become all risk. And FireScope's job is to uh, develop standard, uh, standards for uh, resources throughout the state of California. Um, everywhere from uh, municipal engine companies to wildland engine companies to technical rescue USAR resources as well as hazmat. And it develops standardized training and equipment to make resource ordering easier so that when uh, you're ordering the resource, you're ensured that what you receive is going to meet a minimum requirement. Um, that organization has developed many, many resources, only one of which is, is RIMS, which then um, kind of filters its way through the system and either gets accepted or accepted and modified by the national systems that are out there so that it can be a NIMS uh, recognized equipment or resource. Um, it's broken down, FireScope is broken down into disciplines. And the one we're gonna be talking about today uh, is the Technical Rescue Subcommittee which I've had the privilege of sitting on for the last three or four years. Um, and so our job on that subcommittee is developing the standards, training and equipment for all of the, of the disciplines that would fall under technical rescue, whether it be USAR operations, wildland operations, or swift water operations, just as an example. Um, our job is, is to standardize the training and equipment required to be on those resources so that an incident can request resources easier and, and know what they're getting when they get there. Okay. And so that, that subcommittee you're talking about, that's strictly within the state of California then? It is. Yes. And then, and then we will, we will, once uh, our, our side of things is done within the state of California, it may get filtered up to the, the, the various national organizations that do the same thing to accept our, our typing standard. And sometimes they modify them slightly. If you get um, a type one resource, let's say outside of the state of California, it may be similar, but not exact because many times they're modified slightly to address the needs of the entire nation versus just the needs of California. And the reason why California, we have our own is we're, we are one of the most resource-rich um, states within the United States, um, as well as we have the largest reoccurring threat when it comes to the wildland. Okay. Um, now, this subcommittee, you pull standards from things like NFPA and Calosh and things like that, or is it, do you like where's your scope come from from inside of there? Absolutely. We, we certainly pull from, from all of those, those uh, recognized standards and or regulations to ensure that the system that we're creating um, is, is compliant and on board with the rest of the, of the nation and, and with industry standards. 
And an example of that would be is we're currently working on a tower rescue standard. And through that tower rescue standard, we're, we're looking at uh, tower erector uh, standards, NFPA standards for operation and technician in, in tower rescue, as well as the uh, OSHA regulations that deal with, uh, with communication towers. So we reference all of that material to ensure that the system that we put together is um, compliant with the current standards in, in the time period in which we are developing that particular. Okay. And I'm sorry for all the questions. Like I said, some of this is really new to me and some of it's quite interesting from that end. When you take something like, you know, the tower, what would be a time frame for like an implementation of that standard? Oh, that is that is a loaded question. <laughs> we we oftentimes set uh, set you know uh, time stamped goals in front of us, and and it being a committee, and then a committee that then reports to another committee that then reports to another committee. A lot of times those uh, those time restraints are not adhered to, and and a lot of times it depends on the size and the scope of the project. Um, but in this particular case, uh, we also have a standardized training regiment in California that we that gets ran through state fire training as part of uh, fire marshal's office, which is part of Cal Fire. And a lot of our timeframes um, are, they have a lot to do with other agencies that are working on similar projects um, and trying to time them so that they all flow out at the same time and, and in the correct order. So in this particular case, we're trying to develop a standard that is then going to correlate with state fire training, developing a curriculum that will then roll out a curriculum sometime, um, probably start developing a curriculum in January of next year and roll a curriculum out in June or July of next year. And so we're, our timeframes a lot of times are, are uh, reliant on other, other organizations working on similar projects at the same time. Okay. Now, does that mean that all firefighters inside of California, sorry, for instance, have to do the same training? Like, is this, like you mentioned, Cal Fire in the Office of the Fire Commissioner. So does this mean that a firefighter in, you know, L.A. City and L.A. County and someone in San Francisco all do the same, like, technical rescue training? Is it standardized across like that, or is there latitude in there? You know, that's a great, confusing question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, so we do have standardized curriculum development, state fire training. However, when we write our standards um, on the fire scope side of things, we're writing the standard. We um, we don't adhere to you must take this curriculum from state fire training. We leave it open to the AHJ to um, decide what curriculum they're going to follow as long as it meets the same recognized standards. And so a good example of that would be rope rescue technician. So generally speaking, we'll try to keep the language along the lines of rope rescue technician in accordance with NFPA 1670 and 1006. Now, whether you decide to take California State Fire Training's course or CMC's course or ROCO rescue, or if you're an agency the size of LA City, Perhaps you just develop your own course and you're self-certified and you're adhering to the standards of 1671,006. What state fire training gives you the ability to do, though, is, is take all of the agencies that may not have the ability to seek out those other training regiments 
and go to a standardized state-developed curriculum. Okay. So who do those organizations report to then that they're actually doing the training as per that standard? Is there some body they report to or is it just a self-reporting? So ultimately, the, the resources outside of your own agency and jurisdiction fall under the authority of the Office of Emergency Services, so California OES. Okay. And when resources are typed and they're going to go outside of their organization and be part of the master mutual aid agreement, which is an agreement that we're all part of that says that, hey, we're going to meet these standards and we're going to go out and assist other agencies. Ultimately, when you leave and you're, you're filling a resource request, you're under the, the, the authority of California OES. And so if California OES wanted to, um, to do some, some uh, investigation or, cert or uh, inspection on your uh, typing, they would be the body who would be uh, the third-party certification to ensure that you met those training and equipment standards. And in some cases, there's very regimented. So if, for instance, um, in our hazardous materials and our USAR typing, they have a, uh, a routine regiment every five to 10 years, OES will send a representative out and they will review the training records of the personnel that you have rostered, as well as your equipment inventory, and make sure that you're meeting the minimum training requirements and equipment inventory for that particular resource item. Okay, interesting. Huh. So it actually is quite the system that's been created throughout the state in order to be more interoperable with your neighboring departments, neighboring you know, counties, that sort of stuff, neighboring cities. Absolutely. As well as making resource ordering easier um, so that you can, you can use a typing system with a, a numerical representative of what it is that you need to, to fill the task. Okay. So specifically where today we're going to chat about is REMS. And so what does REMS stand for? So REMS is Rapid Extrication Module Support which don't let the name fool you into any type of description of what they actually do, because it may not always be rapid in any given way. But the system uses a, a, a four-letter acronym-based system. Um, and so finding a name that fit into the four-letter acronym system that uh, describes somewhat what we do, REMS is what was decided on. Um, the easiest way to describe REMS, though, as basis is, is that REMS is a wilderness rescue team with the priority of life safety for wildland firefighters working in the wildland environment is the easiest way to describe it. Um, there's been some diversity out there as far as various teams carrying a multitude of, of different types of equipment that go outside of that that minimum requirement of its, of its primary goal, but its primary goal remains to be a wilderness rescue team to extricate and rescue wildland firefighters out of the wildland. All right, so kind of break it down Barney style for someone like me, like you have a fire complex going on, like what does that look like? When does this resource get 
asked for? Like, is it a certain size or a certain type of fire? So generally speaking, um, rims start getting requested once an incident management team comes in and takes over. And most of the time, it seems to be type one and type two incident management teams. And the, the resource specifically sits under the medical unit side of the house. So okay. once a management team gets into place and the medical unit is established, um, the medical unit leader will start uh, looking at uh, uh, making that resource order request. Now, there have been, and I've been on some smaller incidents that were uh, smaller than an incident management team would come over and take over, and that the incident decided to make that request themselves. Um, throughout the state. And generally speaking, the, the things that trigger a RIMS team are going to be the terrain in which firefighters are operating. Um, deep, nasty terrain where vehicle extrication, whether it is driving to someone or potentially doing an aerial operation with a short haul or a winching operation may not be uh, possible or the best solution for the terrain that their firefighters are working in, that's the environment that really triggers the need for a REM. And there are some smaller incidents that are within the, you know, the initial attack phase that will get REM requests, but the vast majority of the REM requests happen on the larger campaign fires when management teams come in uh, to start managing. All right, so we have people that listen to the rescue cast like around the world, literally. Talk about what a larger campaign fire would consist of, like size and scope for people that may not have an idea what that looks like. Yeah. So in most cases, this is a, a fire that either has reached multiple thousands of acres or has the potential of reaching multiple thousands of acres and is going to have a large amount of suppression resources that are being requested to. And the management teams like all of our other resources are broken up into typing. And we have both operating in the state of California, we have both state teams and federal teams um, that, that have the same typing and the same capabilities. They just work under different jurisdictions. And those management teams, they're, they're professionals at running the incident. And so when it gets to be the point of being above and beyond the local jurisdiction's capability of running the incident and the expanding incident command structure that's going to be required to logistically support that many suppression personnel as well as plan and suppress a fire of that size, that's when these management teams move in. Um, and in California, we have, you know, we, we refer to these fires generally as campaign fires. And at some point, at some point, uh, they, they may become complexes, and complexes are where multiple fires um, will occur in an area that geographically is close enough for one management team to be managing multiple fires under one command structure. And that's where you hear the, the term complex being used. And these are a regular recurrence, in, in, especially in California, every summer. Um, and when those teams come in, those are the ones who really have the, uh, the expertise in requesting resources throughout the all right, and just like a rough number, what, like how many firefighters would be on one of these fires? Uh, um, before an incident management team rolls in, I, I would you're you're getting into uh, into the the larger triple digits, three to five hundred firefighters working. 
Um, and then uh, some of the larger complexes, the Dixie complex, multiple thousands, uh, when you, you account for all of the personnel, whether it's uh, running heavy equipment, private contractors, kitchen support, and things of that nature, you're looking at fire camps that have two or 3,000 folks. Okay. And so a request goes out for REMS. Now, who does that request go to and who can fill that request? So generally speaking, the incident will, uh, will send out the request through OES. Um, OES being the State Office of Emergency Services, and they will trickle down that request to the various uh, OES regions throughout the state, depending on the proximity of that region to the incident, and then how many resources throughout the state are already out. Um, those, those orders then come down through the various regions, and the regions reach out to the agencies um, that are housed within those regions, uh, within those regions to see if, if people are available. And in order to be available, um, we use a, a rostering system called IROC. And that, that IROC system is essentially each individual agency, city, county, fire district, whatever, they register all of their resources on the IROC system. And so if you wanna be a qualified RIMS team, REMS are broken down into type one, type two, type three. Your agency registers your REMS team through the IROC system. And then when it comes, when the resource order comes down for whatever typing of resource, you show if what your team is available or not. And then, then the, to fill the order, it, it works its way back up through the system. It goes back up through your region, back up to the state, down to the incident saying, hey, we have found a REMS team to fill your order. Um, All right. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say when, when, you, when you get to the incident, you know, your, your direct supervisor is generally the medical unit leader. And then the medical unit leader, um, the way the system is designed, will basically farm you out to a division and you'll be working for a division supervisor. However, the way that the system is designed, it's kind of like under the understanding that each division is going to have a REMS team associated with it. So you're only working for that one division. But in a lot of incidents, incidents, that's not the case because there's not enough REMS teams to fill the need that's out there. So it won't be uncommon for you to get to a very large fire, hundreds of miles across, and you may be one or two of the REMS teams that are there. So you may be working for multiple divisions or multiple branches trying to make yourself as useful to the incident as possible. Okay. You mentioned three types and the typings of REMS teams, one, two, three. Can you kind of break that down a little bit? Like what capabilities would those particular teams have? Yeah. So, you know, REMS, like everything else we do, has, has, has evolved quite a bit from its original conception. In, in its original conception, a REMS team was two personnel. And originally, it was two personnel that had a minimum requirement of training and equipment of, of low-angle rescue. And low-angle rescue with the equipment that we generally see on municipal USAR-style rigs, um, which are really not designed to operate in the wilderness environment. Um, it was very, very short after, or short-lived where they, they started realizing that not only is two people not enough, 
but the minimum requirement of training and equipment to do a low angle rescue is not really going to meet with the goal of this resource. Um, so through a series of evolutions, the REMS team became a four person team, um, two of which had to have a, a technician level training when it comes to rope rescue. And then as a minimum, two of which could, could be a low angle style rescue personnel. And then as it continued to involve, what we really uh, ran into was, is that there were few teams that could meet the, the resource request. Incidents were requesting way more RIMS teams than what was available. Um, and so the typing system came out with the intent of kind of giving you a variety of different resources, which may give you an ability to get something if you can't get exactly what you need or what you want. So the, the typing uh, of a type one is for rescue personnel with the training and equipment at a technician level. So a type one is giving you four, four rope technicians with the rope rescue equipment needed to perform a technical high angle rope rescue. Um, a type two is four personnel with two individuals that are technicians and two individuals that are operations, low angle uh, training. And then a type three is giving you a two person team with two rope rescue technicians. And again, the, the idea and the reason behind that was, is that if, if you can't get enough type ones to your incident, um, type two is, is better than nothing. And if you can't get enough type ones and type twos to your incident, a type three is better than nothing. And so it gave uh, more agencies the ability to fill an order uh, or a resource order, even though they may not be able to come up with the type one. Okay. So you mentioned rope rescue. Is there any other training these individuals have to have? Medical, you'd mentioned a little bit about vehicle extrication. Is that part of their scope or is it strictly rope? So as far as the minimum requirements um, go, the individuals have to have uh, the, the rope rescue training equivalent to, uh, to the typing that they're going out with, as well as their basic wildland um, requirements. And what you, what you will find is, is that a lot of the agencies will have internal requirements as well. Um, for instance, my agency, um, we only send out type ones. We require everybody who goes out to be a technician. And then we require everybody who goes out to have um, intermediate wildland fire behavior, which is called uh, S290. Um, and basically, that's the requirement that you need to be a single resource on an incident separate from other supervision. Um, there are other agencies out there that have made other requirements like air ops and helo operations for their specific teams. So you may find some teams out there, or you will find some teams out there that have stricter requirements than what the bare minimum of the state is requiring. But as far as the state is concerned, your minimum training of, of wildland qualifications that every firefighter that goes to a wildland incident within the state, on top of that, your rope, your rope uh, training uh, in accordance with the typing that you're Okay. Now you mentioned that the traditional uh, USAR fire service rope rescue equipment wasn't kind of cutting the mustard for this. 
So when you deploy, what kind of vehicle do you deploy with and what kind of equipment are you using then for rope? I'd say that that uh, for our for our organization for for urban based rope rescue teams in, in the fire service, this is one of uh, the biggest growing pains when it comes to wanting to respond with the rims. And it I think overall is going to be one of the most beneficial things to the system overall. How rims is going to benefit the technical rescue deployment of fire based rescue teams within California. You know. Most teams, I'm not going to speak for every team, but most teams out there for the municipal fire department are running your your half-inch rope and your steel carabiners and and things of that nature. And that all is fine and good when you could park the big toolbox right next to the incident. But in the in the wildland environment, in the wilderness environment, um, hiking your equipment in becomes a whole nother challenge. And being able to operate with less equipment, lighter equipment, um, it is a whole new challenge and is, is really going to expand and is expanding our knowledge and capabilities. It's continuously challenging us, I think, especially if you want to build this resource right. Um, and, and one of the bigger issues that most teams are going to, are going to face is that we all deal with the with the budget issue. And the budget issue comes into play of buying specialized equipment um, as well as training people to use that specialized equipment. And I'd say for my specific experience with my agency, that's one of the biggest challenges is how do you train a, a smaller group of people who want to fill this very specific resource to a different level of, of training? Um, so the the uh, our normal deployment at this particular point is uh, is two pickup trucks and the way that the equipment cache is broken up there's a there's a truck based cache and then there's a hiking cache and that that gives you the ability to have all of your your whiz bang toys and maybe some of your heavier stuff available to you if you're able to park close to the incident let's say for instance you may have a, a vehicle over the side or something of that nature where you can get your vehicle fairly close to the incident and you don't have to hike that equipment in. And then we have a hiking cache of equipment, which is significantly scaled down um, and maybe uses some lighter equipment so that you can physically get the equipment to where you're going and still have some, uh, some fuel left in the tank to get the operation done uh, when you get there. Um, a good portion of the time, we're, we're married up with with wildland hand crew firefighters who are professional hikers and are going into the backcountry in very deep, treacherous terrain. And figuring out how to carry your equipment and get the proper equipment there and still be operational and still be able to do your job is a, is a learning curve for most municipal teams, as well as how to operate with only four of you. Um, you know, the idea is you may have other folks there to help, but, but you also you may not. And so on our particular team, we, we train as if we have to rig and operate with just the four of us. If you happen to have more muscle there, great. But if not, we are, we are completely prepared to uh, perform the rescue on our own. Need be. Um, and with that, you know, uh, a lot of departments are having to, to uh, decide whether or not they're going to stick with their, their G-rated equipment or if they're going to move away to 
technician rated equipment, or, or maybe they're going to go real crazy and, and start using equipment that doesn't carry an NFPA certification at all. But again, the, the issue I think that most teams are running in with that is, is how do you make up with the learning curve and the training curve that it takes to, uh, to break away from those safety barriers that we're given with our, our bigger, heavier, higher rated equipment? How do you get your folks to where they can do field calculations of, of loads and safety factors and make sure that they're, they're using equipment correctly? But it's an exciting time because a lot of teams are starting to expand out and look at other industries, rope access, cliff rescue, cave rescue, uh, wilderness SAR teams and things of that nature and seeing what, uh, what equipment those folks are. Well, that's awesome that it's expanding that. There you go. Trace six mil for everybody. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so what is your team, your agency using for that? Are you hiking in with 12.5 or half inch still or are you using something different for your hiking packs? So, so our, our first couple of years, we were, we were hiking with 12.5 and steel carabiners because we scraped together the equipment to go out. You know, a, a very small group of very passionate folks wanted to get the team out and we used spare equipment from our, from our USAR station. And we learned very, very quickly that um, it made us very um, unfunctional. We were able to do it. We got the job done. But we, but it took a lot physically to get the job done. And since then, uh, we've been able to to convince the department to to supply us with some funding, so that we were able to buy some specialized equipment that has helped. I mean, amazing how much cutting weight um, makes. And and unfortunately, for our for my particular agency, we have not been able to break the barrier of having specialized training to get outside of our, of our general use rated equipment for the most part. And so we've gone with, um, with 11 mil B-rated rope, um, moving all over to uh, some general use carabiners, aluminum carabiners, cutting a tremendous amount of weight. Um, the Stokes basket is a huge issue, going from a stainless steel Stokes basket to a titanium Stokes basket. And then um, making a, a big leap from the old school ATV wilderness wheel to a, a, the, the Terra Tamer wilderness wheel, higher end, titanium frame, much lighter. It's amazing how much weight we were able to cut by making some changes of that nature. Huh, that's interesting. And it's funny, too, with some of it. We were talking about wheels the other day as a tangent. But what if you did something smaller on the front so you could pick up the back and lean into it as opposed to having to balance it in the middle? But that's a whole other conversation for a wilderness. Well, um, it, it, we take that wheel for granted. It's an amazing tool, but there's also a really good learning curve of how, how to operate that thing in, in ugly terrain. Oh, yeah. There absolutely is. Um, so what's a standard deployment? You have four of you and how... Like well, a week, two weeks, five days. What's the standard deployment time? Yeah. So um, the the way that the system works here in California, when you accept a, an assignment, it's a fourteen day assignment with a travel day on either side. So you're you're really committing to leave for sixteen days, and that could be cut short depending on the incident. If the incident yeah. decides to to demob you and send you home early, they certainly have the ability to do so. Um, and then there is an option for you to extend out to a 21-day deployment, 
uh, with a travel day on either side. So that gets you to uh, 23 days. Um, and at, at the end of that, they have to give you the ability to have a day off, and then you can immediately redeploy if your home agency chooses to allow you. So basically, when you head out the door, you're, you're planning on leaving for 16 to 23 days, depending on what the commitment of your team is and size of the incident and how early in the incident you're, you're being sent out. All right. Now, does the state pay back? The agency, I know that's what happens here. The province pays the fire department for use of their equipment and manpower. And the fire department actually makes a bit of money off of that. Is that the same down there? Absolutely, it is. There is a uh, there is a very specific agreement that every agency that is part of the Master Mutual Aid System um, part of. And there's a contracted rate that every agency gets for their resources and their equipment. And then there's a, a billing system that goes back and forth, whether you're, you're going to a state responsibility fire or a federal responsibility fire, your local jurisdiction gets, gets reimbursed from that entity out of that agreement. Okay. Um, now, some of the other REMS teams that you've seen or heard of in the state, um, have they moved lower than 11 mil rope or people going down into the nines or is that still a glass ceiling or a barrier that hasn't been breached? No, there is absolutely teams out there that are breaking that barrier and going down to nine, um, 9.5 rope. Um, there, I would say that they are, uh, they are teams that um, have maybe some stricter requirements on the, the members that are able to go out so that they can ensure that those members um, are trained to a level uh, that makes their agency comfortable with them using rope and other equipment that that has lower safety margins than our our general use NFPA rated equip, equipment but yeah you're you're starting to see a lot of of ATCs and um other types of equipment that you would more likely see in either recreational rope use cave or wilderness rescue you're starting to see teams branch out and become more comfortable with that which i think is one of the things that's the most exciting about this resource is, is it's getting these urban-based rescue teams into the wilderness mindset. Instead of rigging to big old bomber I-beams, they're learning on, on how to do things like rig to trees and rocks and maybe even get into things like cams and nuts and uh, setting bolts, things of that nature. Now, we had talked earlier about the standards that exist in California. And you're talking about, you know, the fire department and, and teaching technical rescue, what have you. Does REMS fall outside of that standard if there's people using different types of equipment? Um, or is you still, I mean, you can run 9.5 in an ATC and still meet an NFPA JPR. But is it, is it just kind of turned a blind eye to that side? Well, I, I think that every agency, that, there's no standardized training out there for it. Okay. Um, the only standardized training level that we have is rope rescue operations, rope rescue technician. Once you get beyond that rope rescue technician, and, and this goes with a lot of the equipment we use, you know, artificial high directionals and things of that nature, we don't have a, a recognized training standard or regiment that um, is a, a pre-packaged curriculum that you can deliver to your folks. So that's up to the agency having jurisdiction of, of what kind of training they're going to provide for their people and what type of skill level are they going to require from their folks in order to use that equipment that kind of goes outside of, of standard, if you will. It, um, my company, First in Safety, we developed a, a three-day 
friends course that we've delivered a handful of times. Again, it's it's not it's not a required training by any means, but it it's it's out there and it's to provide teams who are who are getting off the ground or want to be able to send their their folks to a third party training environment so that they're not doing everything in house um, to give them an idea of, of how to load out their equipment, what equipment they need, what types of, of skills and operations they're going to need inside that that wilderness environment and stepping away from the urban environment. So there are options out there, but there certainly is not a, a standardized training requirement that gets you beyond that operations technician level. Okay, now you brought it up, I have to ask. So what are you teaching within your organization, like first in safety to the teams? Are you using larger diameter or are you moving away from that with that type of training? So, so far, what we have done is, is if, if we've taught it, uh, we've taught it a, 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 what we call an open enrollment class where anybody from any jurisdiction can come in and uh, enroll. And then we've done some, um, some, some classes for individual agency. If we're doing a class for an individual agency, we're, we're going to reach out to that agency and ask, okay, what equipment are you using? What equipment do you want to use? What skill set are you looking for? Um, and we're going to base it on that. Our open enrollment class that we've done where we're getting individuals from any other jurisdiction and the only requirement that we have to, uh, or only prerequisite that we have to require is having a rescue technician course under your belt. In those particular classes, we've been using uh, 11 mil uh, with uh, clutches. It's kind of the, the basis for as far as the raising lowering operation. But we get into things like roll clips and smaller diameter rope for, for various uh, operations, as well as doing some SRT for multi-pitch. One of the bigger issues you're going to run into is, is you can only hike in so much rope with a four-person team. And if you have to have the ability to do a multi-pitch operation. And then we're breaking away into maybe looking at doing SRT stuff, which is completely out of the box for most of our urban teams. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, I know spending some time over in Europe and working SRT with them. It's, it's funny to get into that mindset. And then you come back and it's like, Oh, I got to grab another rope here. <laughs> So, yeah, and I, and I think that the the fundamental when you start introducing our folks to those types of things is 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 explaining the justification as to well why why is this all of a sudden okay in this environment and not okay in some other environment and it's you know it's a risk versus gain and it's a risk analysis that we have to make in this particular um, environment and evolution. Um, so I, I certainly you know don't. I'm not, I'm not promoting that, that we move to, a, to an SRT operation solely. There's, there's a good reason why we use redundant systems, really good reason. But there are some environments, and this happens to be one of them, where the skill set to be able to use a single rope to, to get further and to do multi-pitch stuff with retrievable anchors, very useful skill. Absolutely. A um, couple of final questions here. How many REMS teams, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but would be deployed at any one time, like within fires? Like, you know, I know you can have multiple fires going on. Would it be like five or like 15 teams out there over the course of the state during these seasons? I, I don't know. I don't have really any basis to, uh, to be able to answer that with a number. 
All right. I can tell you in fire seasons like we had last year in 2021, that there were open-ended rims requests for teams all season long, which meant huh. that there were fire incidents that had way more rims requests than there were teams to fill them. Um, and then there's there's another aspect to that as well is, and that is that that rims teams as like any other entity on the planet, but certainly in the fire service, develop their own reputation and, and seemingly very quick that these management teams, they're their own, they're their own social circle in themselves. And um, what you'll find is, is that when, when there's incidents that require very specific skill sets, um, very challenging terrain, there is a handful of RIMS teams that will get what we call name requested. They'll get specifically requested by the, by the med unit because they're teams that they know and trust and are sending them individuals that they know can hike and they know can operate in that terrain. And that list is certainly much smaller. I guess that's like anything, right? You get a reputation, good or bad, and it kind of moves with you, especially in the fire service. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of these, some of these um, missions out there, especially when we're being tied to the forest service, hotshot hand crews um, are taking us into very physically challenging terrain. Um, and it's not only challenging you physically to get there, but challenging you mentally to be able to rig a system with the equipment that you have with you to complete the goal. Right on. Um, as an aside from REMS, when we were talking offline to begin with, you'd mentioned that some of the USAR um, resources are being tasked to do search um, and documentation post-fire. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in California, we, we have a very um, resource-rich environment when it comes to USAR task forces and USAR um, we have eight state national type one teams, um, which are state resources as well as FEMA resources. Those are your, your large, your large teams, you know, 70 to 90 people, depending on their, their deployment pattern. And then we have uh, currently, I think we have 12, what's called regional task forces, which are, are smaller task forces. There's 32 individuals um, with the same skill set as the type ones, they're just smaller and, and the idea being more mobile and, and quicker to respond. Um, starting a handful of years ago, the, the concept of using these smaller task forces, the RTFs, for search and documentation of burn scars became very evident in some of these uh, burns where evacuation took or, or evacuation was conducted um, very quickly due to the fire activity and multitude in the hundreds at times uh, structures were lost and those structures needed to be searched documented and um, kind of a, a chronological documentation of the condition of the building where it was at uh, gps wise and a search for human remains um, in some of these cases because evacuation couldn't be confirmed and now after a lot of these fires the, the local law enforcement jurisdiction ended up with, you know, a host of missing person reports that they then had to um, confirm. And on the law enforcement side, you know, which, which that all falls under, their typical SAR style team doesn't have the training and experience of the large area search 
that our urban search and rescue teams do. You know, we, we train for this large area search involving hundreds of structures in your natural disaster scenario. And so it, it fit very well. You had a group of firefighters that were fire line trained. They could operate on a wildland fire. Um, and they had the skill set to do a large area search, document homes that were either burned to the ground or partially burnt or, or completely untouched in some cases, and do a chronological search and documentation as to the condition of the home, where it was at, if human remains were found inside. So over the past, I'm going to say three to four years, those resources have been used routinely once or twice a year on some of the very large fires where large amounts of homes were lost. Um, and, and that's really starting to change our, our USAR environment and how the USAR teams are being utilized. That's interesting. So with these wildland fires, you've got your technical rope rescue people out doing REMS, and you've got your USAR people, there's probably some overlap there, out doing you know post-fire search, large area search documentation. Are there any other technical rescue specialties that end up? Sorry, are there any other technical rescue specialties that end up being utilized in these fires as well? Well, the other one that that uh, comes off the top of the head is uh, I can tell you that that my task force was deployed uh, several years ago, Ferguson Fire, uh, to conduct the uh, recovery of a dozer operator who was unfortunately. Um, uh, lost inside of his dozer when his dozer uh, rolled down a hill. The, the area in which the dozer was located and the condition of it required um, technical rescue skills to both access, extricate, and remove. It was certainly a unique incident that doesn't happen routinely, but um, because of the interaction of, of these resources on the wildland side and on the USAR side, the um, command structure of that incident was well aware that in their backyard, they had a USAR task force that was capable of, of performing that incident under fire conditions. And they were, we were utilized very successfully. Huh. So that is interesting. I mean, when you think about things like wildland fire, there may not be people that would think that technical rescue would be a big portion of that. They, you know, they see the wildland firefighters, they think, you know, it might be the odd first aid. We have structural in there doing, you know, their tasks as well. But there is actually quite the opportunity for technical rescue firefighters to end up in these incidents and taking a part and, you know, doing some good work then. Absolutely, there is. And it's it's interesting from the standpoint of it's a mixing of environments that we've never seen before. You know, operating in the wilderness environment, yeah, you can look at mountaineering and wilderness rescue teams. But those those rescue teams who are who are bringing their equipment in are not operating under active firefighting conditions. They don't have ash falling down on them and hiking through the green and the black and tanker drops coming across the top of them. And so even though there's some things that we can glean from those folks, can't just take what they've been doing all these years and completely just bring it across. It doesn't doesn't quite work that way. And on the flip side, you have wildland firefighters who have been carrying equipment with them in various types of loadouts for years, but they're not carrying the same equipment. They're not carrying the same amount of equipment. And it's, it's not the equipment they're carrying may not be designed to throw on the ground and deploy very quickly in order to build something on the fly. So we're having to take these various disciplines and kind of, kind of make up a new way as we go, as far as loading out and how to carry equipment and how to make sure you're carrying your, 
your wildland firefighting equipment alongside of your rope rescue equipment, which is sometimes those two things don't play well. Yeah, hot burning objects in nylon rope. Or right. if you're getting smaller, at least you're getting into the Kevlars or the Technoras or the Aramids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's been a it's been a learning curve. And I would say in my particular case and everybody else that I know who is involved in the RIMS program. It's been a lot of trial and error, a lot of like, hey, let's try this and see how it works. Okay, yeah, that that didn't work so well. Let's try something new. Um, until we, you know, you finally found a configuration that that, that was able to uh, to accommodate your gear and your loadout and still make it so that you could do your job when you got to where you're when you're where you're going. Right on. A um, couple last real technical kind of questions. What kind of packs are you carrying the ropes in? What is the like for your department what is the length of rope you're carrying so you know if a four-person team has to hike out in the field like what's the the total length of ropes what kind of packs and you had mentioned that you're teaching on clutches but what does your department actually use okay great question okay so let's go with loadout first so we've we've settled in to a combination of three different packs um, and the way that our team rolls out with a team of four, we have two guys who are assigned rigging, and we have two, one guy who's assigned edge and one guy assigned as the rescuer. So the two rigging oper uh, operators are carrying hardware, software, and ropes. And then the uh, edge person and the rescue person are carrying hardware, software, victim packaging equipment, and the Stokes basket. Um, and so I have found that a combination of, of a couple of different packs are the, are the way to go for, for the two riggers. I really like uh, mystery ranches rims pack actually came out with a, a pack that is designed specifically for rims and it allows you to, uh, stuff rope into a stuff, into the stuff bag, just like it was a rope bag, keeping it packaged and protected. So it's ready to for deployment and it's also not getting damaged by your day-to-day -day work and uh, then i package my hardware software into some individual stuff bags that you might find it at the sporting goods section of any normal sporting good area um, and i put those on top of my ropes so when i go to rig i dump those two stuff sacks out i have my hardware my software and my uh, anchoring material kind of separated out and then i can do my rigging and i have access to my rope right out of the rope bag. Um, it's a very functional and very comfortable um, setup. Our rescuers and edge personnel, because they're not uh, dealing with packing the rope, have found that the Mystery Ranch Medic Pack, which is a pack that has these clear plastic pouches inside of it, works really well because when you flay that bag open, you can see what's inside each individual pouch because it's clear. It's designed for a line medic to have medic stuff in it, but it actually works pretty well from the rigging side. And then the last bag that some some of the individuals have chosen to use is the uh, what they call the hot shot bag, um, which has plenty of room in it, but also has separate pockets for them to separate out their gear so that it's not just everything shoved all in one place. Um, now, as far as that goes, there are some other teams that I've seen that chose to go with. Um, like a much simpler webbing, web gear style setup with their fire shelter and then put on a rigging bag over the top of it, like something like CMC's rig tech bag. 
I know that that has, you know, other teams have found that to work good for them, but I think that mystery ranch set up with individual assignments and equipment with those assignments have worked really well for our small team based setup. Uh, we are currently carrying two 300 foot 11 mil ropes um, with, with our hiking setup, carry a whole host more rope on the truck. Um, and if we get into an area that we pre-plan and we feel needs more rope, we have the ability to stuff more rope into those uh, mystery ranch bags. But those mystery ranch bags, um, they they accept 300 feet of 11 mil very well and leave plenty of room for your hardware software rigging assortment to go on top of it. And quite honestly, with the ability of, of running a uh, uh, running a redundant system down to 300 feet. And if you have to go SRT to 600 feet, the 300 foot uh, rope when it comes to our hiking assortment has really worked out very functional. Yeah, I'm just looking at that rim pack and it says 200 plus feet. So you say you are getting 300 feet of 11 in there. Yep, yep. 300 feet of 11 actually works in there very well. We, we, uh, they were gracious enough to, uh, to, to give us a demo pack for us to use for our, our most recent RIMS course that we taught in March, where we were able to kind of play with it and actually see what we were able to fit into it. And the 300 foot went in there really nice. Right on. Um, and what are you using for a controlled descent device? Sorry. And in our team, we are currently using um, the, uh, the 11 mil clutch. Um, it is a little bit heavier than some of the other. Uh, alternative options out there, but it also, you know, it, trade off is is that everybody on the team is trained to use them. So the, the vast majority of our folks that go out as REMS are also USAR members. Okay. So we use the 11 mil, we use the, uh, we use the clutch on both our USAR and on our truck companies. So everybody in the department is trained on using the clutch. So to incorporate that clutch into REMS, there's not an additional training requirement that is needed in order to to move that a piece of equipment over. And obviously it gives you all of the benefits of, of all the fail safes that are built into it, as well as the friction reduction in the pulley. So in comparison to, you know, some of the other, the Sparrow or, or the E4, some of the other devices that may be lighter and smaller that you could kind of incorporate in there, you're carrying a little bit more weight, but there are some benefits that, that um, apply specifically to our, our organization when it comes to training and competency and using it. And the fact that it, it does give you some other bit. Huh. Right on. Um, last question on like the down in the weeds technical. Is there any piece of equipment that you found in the wilderness side that's completely different from the urban side? You know, the flux capacitors like, yeah, we have to have this on the wilderness side. We don't touch it on the urban side sort of thing. Um, well, I, the first thing that comes to mind it would be an SMC vector. Um, okay. You know, I, I think that, that we in the rope world are starting to, to create an over love affair with the artificial high directional. And we're starting to lose some of our transitional skills when it comes to edge transitions because we're so focused on artificial high directionals. Um, but there is without a doubt a benefit in many times of getting your ropes up off the ground. Um, not only to alleviate the edge transition, but to also alleviate edge pro issues when it comes to protecting our rope. Um, and, you know, you have a couple of options out there. You know, most departments own 
either an Arizona Vortex or, or SMC Pair Adapter. And you could carry a leg with you in order to make some sort of, of monopod style artificial high directional. But in both cases, they are substantially larger and heavier than the SMC Vector. Um, I, the SMC Vector would probably never be my go-to in an urban environment, but in the wilderness environment with its size and its weight, um, it's a very functional monopod to get your ropes off the ground and help with both that edge transition and, and get some stress off your ropes on that, on that edge. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a very specific kind of wilderness style piece of equipment that I, that I see incorporating in our team quite a bit. Right on. And I mean, we could probably go down the rabbit hole on both of those with the whole edge transition and yeah, the, well, are we losing that skill set? But bringing something small like that in order to rig to doesn't hurt. Absolutely. Um, anything else that you want to add in about REMS or technical rescue in the wildland environment or anything about anything? Just uh, let me know. Well, I, I think it, just to reiterate, I think it's, it's an exciting time from, from the standpoint of I think that it's going to be a catalyst moving forward in the fire-based rescue environment of getting us outside of that of that stereotypical half-inch G-rated piece of equipment that um, we've been taught since we came on. And, and in, in my experience, the fire service has really been um, held to for the last, say, 30 years or so. Um, there's a lot of different techniques, a lot of safe ways of doing things that, that utilizes a lot of different equipment in different ways. And um, in many cases, you know, is lighter and faster in some ways. And I think that this operation in the wilderness environment is really going to be the thing that pushes us into that environment and starts uh, starts getting our eyes open on the larger scale, um, our, our eyes open to the way that other industries out there are doing things and that there may be a different way than just that, that, that G-rated piece of equipment that we're used to. Oh, absolutely. I think we're seeing it more and more. Like you say, it's the, the crossing or the multi-pollination of rope rescue between rope access and ARB. And now, you know, this wilderness and the REMS, which is wilderness with a twist. Yes. Um, yeah, so there's certainly very similar principles, but different techniques and different end states are required. Yes, and we're very lucky in California that we're not adhered to NFPA in any particular way other than our own um, self-imposing of it. Uh, we don't have anything in our, in our OSHA regulations or, or any of that, that that holds us to that. And it really allows us to expand our knowledge and our equipment use as long as we have the training to back it up to go outside of, of that norm. No, absolutely. I mean, there's other standards out there. There's a lot of people that do rescue and rope access and wilderness environments that don't touch NFPA. And as my buddy Pena would say, where's the stack of bodies? <laughs> One of my favorite sayings that I have gladly stolen from him and uses my own continuously. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, no, that's awesome to chat about this. I learned a ton. I mean, um, I, I'd heard about it a little bit when I was down in California with a couple of those programs, and it's good uh, to hear about it. I appreciate you taking the time to chat about that today. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity, 
um, and uh, hope to do it again sometime.